Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. First-time visitors to the annual commemoration at the Dade Battlefield in Bushnell, Florida are sometimes startled to see amidst the melee a black Seminole racing his horse up and down the field of action. Likewise, groups escorted along the Dade Battle Memorial Trail discover the same black Seminole emerge from a concealed strategic position to converse with them. The young man portraying the black Seminole warrior is Matt Griffin. He is a native Floridian who traces his heritage back to the times of forced Indian removal during the Second Seminole War joins us today to discuss what the alliance between Seminole and Black Seminole in that war signifies to him, what part Black Seminoles played in the Dade battle itself, what portraying a Black Seminole reenactor for nearly two decades has taught him about the war, and why we should know and still care about that contentious conflict. Matt Griffin, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you. I appreciate it. Matt, the Seminole Wars are roughly two centuries ago. Why should we know about them, and why should we still care about them? Oh, man. So that's, <laughs> that's a question I get asked a lot, too. What a remarkable time period. And I think one of the only reasons why we don't hear more about it is a lot of times it gets blamed on the Alamo because that happened during that same time period as well. But it really is a unique part of Florida history. U.S. history, really. We start talking about major events that would happen later on in history. We start talking about military commanders that went on to be prominent in other wars. Well, a lot of them cut their teeth right here in Florida. Uh, the U.S. government spent so much time, spent so much money in Florida trying to get rid of the Seminoles and the, and the Black Seminoles here. And it, it's really just a unique part of history. If you talk to some historians, they'll say that the Second Seminole Wars was the largest slavery bill in the United States, and there's a lot to be said for that. So I think there's a lot of seeds of events that get more highlighted later on in history that if you really look at it, a lot of that started right here in Florida. It's just a unique part of history and one that really helped shape this nation that unfortunately isn't well known and doesn't get talked about a lot in the history books. When I was a little kid uh, growing up in middle school, um, there's three Seminole Indian Wars, and there was maybe two paragraphs about all three of those wars in my social studies book. And you think about the number of people that died here, the amount of money that the government spent, and just kind of how the course of Florida history was changed because of those wars, and it basically gets skimmed by with two paragraphs. Talk about how the Black Seminoles were part of the Dade Battle. Abrahamstown was not far from there. From my reading and from my understanding, a lot of them were not initially in the battle, but got there towards the end. How did soldiers' dismissive interactions with Black Seminole at Fort Brooke come back to haunt them on the Dade battlefield? Whenever the Black Seminole goes either Fort Brooke or Fort King, you know, the soldiers picking out them saying, you know, what do you got to trade or what do you got to sell? And there's accounts of black criminals coming and basically looting the soldiers. And I believe one of the phrases that was used was taunting at the soldiers. What do you got to trade? What do you got to sell? What does the Seminole and Black Seminole joint attack on the Army Column signify for our understanding of the Dade Battle? You have two distinct groups. 
on the Seminole side. You've got the Seminoles themselves and Black Seminoles that really came together there at Day Battlefield on that piece of ground and made a stand. Two distinct groups that, yes, had their differences culturally and politically, but it really came together for one reason, and that was to try to keep a home here in Florida. I mean, what better of a, a patriot story than that? These two groups, their whole goal was let's harass them enough, let's try to make a stand, make a show of this enough to maybe, just maybe, they will leave us alone, and if nothing else, maybe we can buy ourselves some time. And I think that's really what that battle signified is, hey, we're here. We don't want to go anywhere. We're not trying to go anywhere. And we're going to stay here and fight till the end. You're asked to come on the Dade Memorial Trail to talk to groups. When you talk to them, are you portraying a black Seminole and giving them answers as a living historian? Or do you assume a character and speak to them as somebody who is aware of the Dade battle? I kind of do both of those. When I've done that in the past, I believe I start those out as more generic. who I am, but black Seminole warrior from this time period. This is why we're here. This is how our people got here. We were slaves that came down, joined up with the Seminoles, and they welcomed us with open arms. So I think I kind of do a little bit of both of that, but also flip the switch and do more of a living historian as people ask me questions and want to know more answers about certain events. Do you find a difference in the caliber questions when you get some groups that are military-related? From a military standpoint, those guys that come up, they really want to know more about, you know, what was the strategy here, Dade, or really throughout the wars, what was was the psyche of thinking and stuff. When they come up and when they're asking questions, they definitely bring a different dynamic because they are looking at it from strategic and from a military point of view, which is nice to be able to talk to them about that stuff too. Start talking about guerrilla warfare and harassing the soldiers. I think that they've got a different understanding of it especially some of those individuals that have been in combat. So when I talk about doing certain scenarios or the way certain battles and stuff happen, that story resonates with them differently than than me talking to just an everyday civilian about certain situations. Matt, as a living historian portraying a black seminal on the Dade Memorial Battlefield Trail, I'm sure these military groups have asked you this question many, many times. With Major Dade and half of his command dead, why didn't Captain Gardner take the troops and move north, away from the ambush and towards Fort King, which was their ultimate objectives? How do you respond to them? One of the things that we always have to be cognizant of is it's easy for us nowadays to say, well, well, why didn't they do that or why didn't they do this? But it's a whole different story when you're actually there in the heat of battle at the time, right? The other thing is you're in the heat of battle and trying to continue this battle and also march at the same time. It almost seems like it would have been, from my understanding, it probably would have been better for them to try to take a stand and regather their forces. You look at the battlefield and you do the reenactment, everything's right there in that one location. But when you go to date and you march on that road and you see just how spread out that battlefield is from the front gate all the way back down to the museum, and you've got Seminoles in front of you and lined up on the side of you. And on the other side of you, you've got a pond and you're almost boxed in. Where do you go? And I'm sure they wouldn't have known if they were going to be harassed all the way back to Tampa or harassed all the way up to 14. So, Matt, there are historical accounts of black Seminoles throughout the first half of the 19th century. What period do you portray a black Seminole in? Mostly do Second Seminole Indian Wars, so 1835-1842. Been a reenactor and living historian for, oh man, almost 20 years now. I think next year will be 20 years. 
So basically what I do is I portray a black Seminole Indian from the 1830s, 1840s, which you know were escaped slaves and runaways that joined up with the Seminoles. But I travel all over the state of Florida, well also outside of the state as well, teaching people about the Seminole Wars, the Seminole Indians, their history, as well as the black Seminole Indians and, and how all of that tied into Florida history and well, really U.S. history as well. What got you started in doing this? So I got started with my great uncle, John Griffin. Started reenacting together about 20 years ago. Growing up as a kid, my uncle had a room that was full of old cowboy memorabilia. John Rain, uh, Gene Autry, Roy Rogers. At the time, my uncle had cows, and I would go over on the weekend and spend a lot of time with him. And he would teach me about working the cows and all that fun stuff. But then he would also take time to teach me about some of the black cowboys that were out west mostly. They were there on the weekends and, you know, have Sunday dinner with them watching The Lone Ranger or Roy Rogers or whoever it was on TV that night. So really just started learning about some of the black cowboys and that led into learning about the Buffalo Soldiers and then you know, black Indians, black Native Americans. So I always had an interest in history and he just kind of fostered that. That went on for years and then one day we saw an article in the newspaper for Dave Babafield. He asked me if I wanted to go and I said, yeah, let's check it out. And I think I was probably seven or eight years old then, I guess. And so we went over to Dave Babafield, watched the reenactment, had a phenomenal time getting to meet some of the reenactors that were there. So we started making that a tradition. We would go every year for the next two or three years we went. A lot of the reenactors really took time out to talk to us and tell us about the black involvement during the Second Seminole Wars. They start telling us about other reenactments and events that they were doing. So we would pop up at different events and eventually everybody was like, well, if you're going to pop up everywhere, you might as well participate too. So I asked my uncle if he'd help me get an outfit and stuff together. And he did. I actually started reenacting before he did. I think I started reenacting at 10, and he would just take me to different events here and there. And then two or three years later, he finally got an outfit made as well and, and started participating in the reenactment with me. So you're able to trace your own heritage to Black Seminoles? Uh, first thing everybody wants to know is, well, how much Seminole are you? Now, I always try to make the clarification that Black Seminole didn't necessarily mean that those individuals had any seminal blood in them at all, right? Because you had intact families that were coming down, running away from plantations in Alabama, Georgia, and the Carolinas down into Florida that eventually got lumped into the Seminole Nation, whether that was they had their own separate towns and villages, but there was an alliance between the two, which is what happened with our family, basically. So I had a grandfather and grandmother, um, the Sinclairs, that escaped from a plantation in Alabama and came down into Florida near present-day Brooksville. And there was a Seminole village not far from there, probably one of the longest inhabited Muskogee Creek or Seminole villages in the state of Florida, especially during that time period. And then one of the grandsons ended up taking a wife from that village back to our family homestead, which, I, like I said, is not too far from where Chuckachatty and stuff was at. My family's always been here in Florida, or after they got here in Florida, have stayed in Florida. My family wasn't relocated to Oklahoma or anything. That's the perception, is a large number of Seminole Indians were removed, and they took black Seminoles with them. And so the thought is, all the black Seminoles in Florida departed, but this is not the case. Which definitely isn't the case. A lot of the black Seminoles left and went down to the Bahama Islands. Remnants of the black Seminoles are all over the place, whether we're talking about Florida, the Bahamas, Oklahoma, Texas, or Mexico. At age 10, you started reenacting, representing a black Seminole, as well as having that in your heritage. What was the part or the role that you were doing? 
But me and my uncle, we started going to the reenactment. During this course of probably that same year or close to it, we actually learned about our family connection to it. And then during that same time period, we got to meet Dr. Rosalind Howard from the University of Central Florida that's done a book signing on her book, Black Seminoles in the Bahamas. So it's really crazy how all of that stuff lined up within a relatively short amount of time. I was basically doing the same thing that I'm doing now, <laughs> learning as much as I can and teaching what knowledge that I've gathered to people. As a young reenactor, like I said, 10, 11 years old, was able to get out on the battlefield and actually participate in the reenactment. A lot of the older reenactors at the time really took me in and helped me out in any way that they could. So we're talking about the DeBerry family or Steve Kramer or Swamp Owl or any of the rest of them, Sawgrass and them. A lot of those reenactors, uh, Ralph Smith, get too far into naming names, but those older reenactors really taught me a lot and really made me not feel like I was a little kid, but that I was a part of the family and you know, really just took me in and taught me everything that I know now and really encouraged me to learn more about the history and um, it really encouraged me to teach others about it as well. When I see you at reenactments, you're riding a horse. Before you became a reenactor, did you know how to ride a horse? I had always wanted to ride horses. We had cows when I was growing up. We never needed horses to work our cows or anything. There was always that desire there to ride a horse. Swamp Owl is a pretty prominent seminal reenactor. Well, he always rode a horse. And as a little kid, to see him at the end of the battle, rearing up on his horse and shooting the soldier, I mean, I just thought that was the coolest thing ever, right? There was always a desire to ride a horse and stuff. And, and Swamp Owl took a lot of time with me when I was a kid. I'm not sure how much a lot of other people realize, like, how big of an influence he's had on my persona of a black Seminole. But when I was a little kid, he lives not far from me. So my uncle would go and pick me up take me over to his house a lot of times in the afternoons and he would just sit there and tell me stuff or pull out books or whatever else I needed to know or wanted to know or had an interest in. So I would just go and plunder through all of this stuff. I did not know how to ride a horse. First time that I really rode a horse by myself for the most part, we were at a reenactment. We were at Big Cypress for the big shootout that they used to do down there at the safari. It was after the reenactment and I had been watching him on Smokey for years and he came up to me after the reenactment and he said, hey, you want to ride? And I said, uh, sure, I think. <laughs> and uh, he's like, well, hop on. So I got on Smokey and the Swamp Owl was there and he's like, all right, well, I'm going to give you, you know, these words of advice thinking he's about to give me this great book of wisdom on how to ride a horse. And he basically told me, don't fall off and don't embarrass me. <laughs> and he's like, here you go, have fun. And I took off on Smokey and luckily Smokey was a sport about it and ended up getting my own horse, I want to say the next year, and started incorporating her into Maria Nightmare. And that's the horse you continue to bring? Yep, that's the same horse. Um, I got her when I was actually in high school. Um, I think my 11th grade year or my senior year. Yeah, so I've had her for the last 10 years or so, using her in the reenactments and everything. It's pretty unique being able to use the same type of horses, the Florida Cracker Horse or Marsh Tacky. That's pretty neat, too, to be able to use a horse that those early settlers would have used, those early cowboys in Florida would have used, and that the Seminoles would have used too because they're descendants of the horses the Spaniards brought here in the 1500s. And those horses are still being used today on working ranches throughout the state, and the Seminole tribe as well still have quite a few of them. Do the clothes, gear, and or weapons that you use differ much from what the Seminole Indian reenactors are using? 
No. If you go back and look at a lot of the pitchers of the Black Seminoles in that time period, a lot of them had integrated with the Seminoles for a fair amount. So a lot of the outfits that I wear really reflect that time period. There's definitely a lot of similarities between the outfits that I wear now compared to what other reenactors are using and definitely not that much of a difference from what they would have worn back in that time period as well. How have you been able to obtain the gear that you used? I'm money and patience. <laughs> Funny, I was talking to a guy in Texas last year. He was basically asking me the same question because he does a lot of documentaries. And I told him, everything that I've got is I either made myself or I had somebody make for me or I bought it from somebody else. It just takes time. I go back and I look at pictures from years ago and look at how my regalia has evolved over the years. Your personal taste may change a little bit. It takes time, and as you grow as a reenactor, your outfit and your regalia grows and changes with you as well. Prime example, for years, I hated wearing a turban, and now, within the last two or three years, I've really been appreciating wearing a turban more. So it's funny, I can go back and look at pictures, and I can almost pinpoint in a two or three year time frame of when that picture was taken, just by looking at the outfit stuff that I was wearing. Have you portrayed Abraham, or John Caesar, or John Horse, or just portrayed a generic Seminole? character that I portray is really more of a, just a generic representation of Black Seminole Warrior from that time period. When I was growing up, even now, and Ralph Smith really portrays Abraham a lot because he did such a good job. I still look at him as Abraham. Have you tried to, in your own mind, come up with a backstory for that Seminole? At times I do. It kind of goes with what event that I'm doing or maybe what reenactment or what school group or history group that I'm talking to. Maybe try to come up with a backstory then just to give the audience an idea of something that could happen. There was a really good book called Diballo that I read years ago, and I really liked the backstory that they had in that book of a young man that escaped off a plantation and came in down to Florida and joined up with the Seminoles. So I think my character takes on different personas because there were so many different scenarios that happened that allowed for creation of the Black Seminole. But I don't think I've ever really pinpointed it down to just one backstory, one character that I portray or anything. How do you handle people who are coming to their first reenactment and they see you and their first question is, they were Black Seminoles? Yeah, I did that actually a lot. I was at a, an event up in Ocala years ago. This young lady, she had seen me riding around the park on horseback all day, you know, doing different presentations and stuff for people, like little crowds. And even after all of that, she still came. It's like, well, there were black seminoles? I'm like, yeah, yeah, there were. I'm not just doing this just to be out here. So I try to tell people that there were escaped slaves and runaways that were coming down to Florida. And one of the analogies that I use is, well, the Underground Railroad, we often think of slaves escaping and headed north. But in reality, those slaves were coming south long before they were headed north. So I just try to really just take that time just to touch on the history and kind of open their eyes. There was so much that was happening during this time period as far as blacks seeking freedom as well. I really just try to enlighten them that, hey, there were blacks that were escaping down to come into Florida to join up with the Seminoles. The Spanish government issued a decree that said any black could come down to Florida and, and become free on their stipulation that they would come get Catholic citizens. Really just try to use that as a good teaching moment and to share my story and share the story of so many that came before me.
How many black Seminole reenactors are there? I think that number fluctuates, right? When I first started, it was really the only ones that I knew about would have been Ralph Smith and his son. And then me and my uncle got started. Then for a while, there's guys that we knew here local that did a lot of Buffalo Soldier reenacting and living history events. So we reached out to them and started getting them involved in the Black Seminole and started into the second Seminole Awards. Those numbers have fluctuated. But to be honest with you, there's not many of us out there. With my uncle passing away last year, obviously he was a giant in terms of knowing the history in Pratt. Now, when I get to reenactment anymore, it's really just me. There's not usually a whole lot of other people. There's another gentleman, another family. Uh, I know that gets to Alify Rendezvous a lot, and they've been doing some portrayals of black criminals as well. There's another gentleman by the name of James Bullock. He does a lot of early Spanish colonial stuff up in St. Augustine, but he will come out and participate as well during Seminole Wars event. Here in Florida, there's not that many of us. Pretty much all of the main ones I know, most of them. I would love to see more folks, especially my age, get into it. And I was griping and complaining last year because I got asked to do some events and I just didn't have enough time <laughs> to get to them. Some guys want me to come up to Georgia and North Carolina to do events for them. I'm only one person I couldn't I'd make it to those events. But to answer your question, though, there's not that many like Seminole reenactors. How much are you asked to do outreach at schools, for instance, to talk about Black Seminole and their experience? I do quite a bit of that. So when I first started out, so high school and my beginning college years, I would probably do battle reenactment. I would probably do maybe uh, 10 of those a year. And then actual outreach, talking to schools, history organizations, I would probably do 15 or 20 of those events throughout the year as well. Nowadays, I don't do quite that many anymore, but I still do get asked to come speak to Daughters of the American Revolution or different historical societies. So I do quite a bit of outreach and programs of that nature. I used to go over to the University of Central Florida once a year and teach a class over there as well. Years prior, I probably did anywhere from 10 to 20 events a year. Nowadays, no more than 5 to 10 a year. So you learn by experience, by doing, by listening and learning. How much book research have you done to supplement what you've learned? I've read a lot of good books over the years. I believe you had Dr. Dixon on one of your podcasts before. I've read his books, Dr. Rosalind Howard, her book on the Black Seminoles in Bahamas. One of the good things about me is whenever I started out, my uncle wouldn't spare any expense, right? If there were any good books or anything out there, or if I said, hey, I saw this book online, well, he would just order it for me. <laughs> and you know, so I've got a whole collection, a whole library of books that I've had at my disposal over the years. That also being said, a lot of times reenactors, they would, from when they were doing a lot of research and stuff, so like Swamp Owl, I remember one time, gave me just vanilla folder after vanilla folder of just maps and just research that he had done over the years and just gave it to me. The little kid was like, here you go. This has helped me out. It's yours now. You can read through this and pick through it and everything else. Had all this stuff at my disposal over the years. And not like anybody else, I definitely have to go back and reread stuff to make sure that you don't get facts crossed up or kind of refresh your memory. I try to go back and look through books that I haven't read a year or two or subjects that I haven't visited in a while to kind of refresh because when I started out, they would always tell me, much as you learn, as much knowledge as you 
gained from reading books, from talking to historians, from coming to the reenactment, you're still only scratching the tip of the iceberg. There's still so much information out there. So with that, you just keep researching. You just keep trying to learn more about what happened and how different events played out and how that it affected the wars, affected the scenarios and stuff that happened then and how that carries on into the present day. Matt, you're also a member of some of the foundations and societies. What are these and why are you a member? So I sit on the board at the Day Battlefield Society. My uncle sat on that board too for years. And then we've also gone to some of the meetings for the Seminole Wars Foundation. I would say probably one of the biggest reasons of being a member is to help ensure the, the longevity and viability of those organizations so we could keep doing what we're doing, which is teaching a very significant part of Florida history, but also U.S. history and African-American history. That and also being able to be around other people that have a genuine interest in the same thing that I have an interest in and to be able to learn from them and share knowledge with them as well. For our listeners who say, I want to do reenacting, how can they reach you, Matt? I'm on Facebook, Matt Griffin, or you can reach me by my cell number, which is 352-552-3383. Call me. My email address is Matt. G, M-A-T-T-G, 1835 at gmail.com. Just reach out to me and whatever way I can help you, you've got a genuine interest in it. How I got started, somebody took the time out to spend time with me and help me out. Whatever I need to do, I'm, I'm more than happy to help. Matt Griffin, thank you for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.